This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. What's your purpose this year? What new things will you learn? Sign up for The Great Courses Plus and find out by visiting thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably to get a 14-day trial with unlimited access for free. Probably Science. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. Hey, Andy. Um, hello, hello. I'm excited by this guest. We we've haven't done... We haven't nearly enough taken advantage of the fact that we are recording remotely, so we're no longer constrained by different locations of possible guests. And this is one of my favorite comics, and someone who was, who was kind enough to take me on tour when I was just a baby, just a, a little runt of a comedian. It's Ed Byrne. Hey, Ed. Hello, Matt. How I, you I, it only just occurred to me that that's why I'm on the show, because now you're doing it remotely. I don't need to be with you, because I was kind of like, when you called me and said, will you come and be on the show? I'm like, yeah, why haven't they asked me before? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, that's the sort of person I am. I won't just go, yes, why, thank you, and graciously accept. <laughs> I will start looking at the negatives and go, this show's been going ages and they haven't asked me. <laughs> um, but yes, because previously you've only been recording people who can physically be in a room with you. Yeah, yeah and, and you selfishly don't even live in London anymore. I don't even live in London. I don't even, I live, well, but I live like an hour from London. So right. selfish. <laughs> <laughs> it is very but, selfish of me. I live, in a, I live in a big selfish house in selfish Essex. <laughs> <laughs> With a selfish garden and selfish space, and I was going to say, and and a selfish family, but that's (laughs) (laughs) and a selfish airport, and all of that. It's all Um, there, Ed. Before we Mm. get into science stories, we like to ask our guests, "What, if anything, is your background in science?" Yeah, I I know some of the answers to this question, but that's ranged from I've got a doctorate in it to i blew stuff up in the woods with my friends when i was a kid to anything in between uh i'm in between but definitely on the uh further away from the doctorate end of the spectrum more towards the blue stuff up as a kid i did i i dropped out during the second year of a bachelor of science so i did i did the first year and passed and got into second year and then gave up now, admittedly, the science was horticulture, but it still counts. It would have been a BSc <laughs> in the end. Uh, so it was basically a sort of broad, you know, first, for, you know, yourself, first year of university, it's fairly catch-all science uh, stuff. So I, you know, so I know a bit, um, but that's about it. And I used to play with a chemistry set when I was a kid. I had a microscope. You know, I was one of those. I was a nerd. Yep. That's a, uh, do kids still have chemistry sets? Is that still a thing? I hope it is. It's got to be, right? Yeah, because the, the, the stuff that was in chemistry sets was never that dangerous. I mean, no, all you... of it would kill you if you drank it, but so so was so table salt if you drink right. enough of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So, because yeah. I, I remember the one thing you couldn't, that w- didn't come with it, you couldn't, you had to get methylated spirits separately. Is oh, there another, the is there another term burner. for that in America? We've talked about this, and I forgot what that's a term for. It's, this exact conversation has happened with other... Uh, Me- methylated spirits is just denatured alcohol. So, denatured alcohol, is that, is that what you, got, is that what, is that so what it, you guys call it, Matt? Is that what yeah, you guys, you Americans call it? <laughs> right, us, us in this country, <laughs> compared to you people, you English. Yeah. 
I, to be honest, I've never heard, unless, I, maybe well, last time we talked about this, but like denatured isn't a, uh, an adjective that I had yeah. heard growing up in any context. What it basically means, I think it has different, there are different versions of it, but the main one is there's ethanol, but it's also mixed with methanol, which makes it poisonous, and then it's mixed with a blue dye, or a purple dye rather, to make it look not drinkable and also have a bad taste to it to stop people from drinking methanol which can make you go blind and possibly die and that's why no one ever drinks gatorade right exactly (laughs) it's there was a classic joke uh, a guy irish comic called sil fox used to tell about it about an alcohol a guy well a guy trying to buy a bottle of methylated spirits and being a known alcoholic and going into the hardware shop and the guy behind the counter saying i'm sorry I'm not selling this to you. I know who you who you are, and you'll just drink this. And she goes, "Oh, I won't. I promise. I'm 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 trying to strip paint off the kid's bike. I'm trying to win my family back. I'm I'm on the straight and narrow. Please, I need this bottle of methylated spirits." And he goes, "Eventually, oh, okay." And he sells it to him, and, the, and he hands it to the guy, and the guy goes, "Do you not have a cold one?" <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming. That's great. Classic, <laughs> classic joke. Uh, uh, excellent joke. Anyway. Anyway, oh yeah, that's my other uh, qualification. Uh, give, give me a, a, a subject, and I'll I'll know a joke someone used to tell. <laughs> <laughs> you are remarkably good at that. You have a very good memory for mat- people's material from a long time ago, like accurately yeah. as well. Not just like if I'm remembering someone's joke from twenty years ago, it's like yeah, he had a joke that was kind of about it. Sort of went like this: late eighties to mid nineties. I, I I know it all. I, I have photographic memory for that period. Anything after that, I'm I'm a bit hazy because I get I, I think I got too self involved. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's when I was watching the most stand up on TV, like when Comedy Central first formed, and when there were just tons of like, every network had some kind of stand up, like stand up, stand up, the A list, all those kind of shows. On yeah, yeah, shows. two drink minimum. Yeah, yeah. Well, also Loads. once you actually start doing comedy, then. Hmm. Yeah, not only are you more self-absorbed, but you also become much more worried about about absorbing other people's comedy. Yeah, yeah, I have it, have it rub off too much on you. Yeah, yeah, very true. But yeah, I just I think it was I think you absorb it like a sponge when you're when you're just thinking about becoming a comedian. Yeah, I think that that period, so sort of that sort of early nineties. You know, I can recite word for word stuff by people like Richard Jenny and 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 Bill Hicks and stuff like that. You know, that sort of oh, yeah. period. Yeah. And, and also, my knowledge of Bill Hicks was from those same like half hour special, half hour shows where you weren't getting the Bill Hicks that comics no one love. You were getting, you know, he was also a very competent jokey joke comic. Oh yeah. And so it's like, oh, that's the thing I always find funny when people when you get the real disciples. Right. He also did a lot of like dick jokes and jokes right. yeah. porn and you know. And yeah, he I tells it how it is, really about what hotel porn's like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, we get, getting into stories there were yes. we haven't done we haven't done an episode with a comedian and going through the stories for a couple of weeks because we've had we've had scientists and authors on so we've got a good stock up of important stories that have happened since we last did one and i'd say this is probably the most important story that's happened in the last few weeks because yeah. multiple people have sent it in okay. i'd say this is really like world changing in the world of science but octopuses observe punching fish Perhaps out of spite, scientists ah. say. Hmm. So, well, I always think perhaps is a is is an interesting term for a scientist to use. Yeah. 
I always I <laughs> doubt the the, the 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 scientific merit of a headline that's got the word perhaps in it. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think he's thinking right now? Says one scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists ponder. And... Methinks methinks this is a spiteful punch. <laughs> <laughs> Just How going... do you measure the level level of spite in a punch? I don't think even if I was punching somebody, I could accurately measure the level of spite <laughs> in my own punch. <laughs> if I was the actual person punching some other sentient being, I couldn't tell you how much spite was involved. So the idea that scientists could measure it in an octopus while merely observing it. <laughs> that just shows you how far science has come in recent years. I guess. Well, I mean, like I can say, it was. I it was it, again early nineties. I did uh, my one year of a BSc. So perhaps, perhaps spike <laughs> measurement has revolutionised in the intervening twenty years. Well, Matt, you know I have this Oculus. Thirty headset. years, my God, thirty years. <laughs> this guy can't even do basic maths. <laughs> uh, well. I was thinking, yeah, I, you know, I've got this Oculus headset, and I've been playing a lot of the VR game Spite Punch, so I know I do know a lot about how much spite goes into my. It's so realistic; it's amazing. It's just punching fish. <laughs> that no one's no one's built that as a game. I don't know where <laughs> where you're just beating the fuck out of animals, but it's fine because it's just VR. It's just you know, also that where you play the part of an octopus. That's how how advanced would the controller have to be? I wonder what, yeah. What is the morality though of like obviously those big game hunters exist, big big game hunter arcade games and bars and things. I mean, certainly if you're killing them with a gun, it couldn't be any more morally wrong for you just to walk up to the deer and start punching it. <laughs> but it does feel so much more real. It yeah, feels so much more brutal. <laughs> but I mean, if the, if the animal could also fight, like if, if you, oh my god, Matt, this is a great game because also you'd go into each new level with an animal. And unless you've played before, you don't know how that animal fights. So, like, you play against the <laughs> adolescent chimpanzee and it rips off your genitals and knocks your jaw off your face. Right. Some of them are, like, rearing on their hind legs and bucking. So. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is the best idea for a VR game I've ever heard. <laughs> I think you should also move up in, you know, levels of complexity for your weapon in that I think you could start off, you know, with your bare hands and then move to perhaps a hammer. Uh, you know, which... <laughs> Which would do for your slower, easier animals, you know, <laughs> sure, your, sure. your your cows and the like. Um, and then and then maybe you might need a bladed weapon for, you know, a horse. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. I, there's, there's scope in this. Let's pitch some names. I think Zoop Punch. Zoop Punch could Zoop go punch. viral. That could be a really good game. <laughs> Just so for... how, how have these um, so, uh, scientists observed... Oh, yes. I mean, even yeah. when you say punching, that's a very, again, what is it? Like, I'm just pi- picturing a tentacle and the difference between a slap and a punch. I that, suppose, I suppose the difference at, between whether you're going straight forward or you're moving across is the difference between a slap and a punch. Yeah. And we, we, put the sh- we put the link to the article in the show notes if you look at the... Um, oh, the, right. there it is. Yeah, the you can look on it there as well. And there is a video in the, yeah. that has been tweeted. I'm... I mean, that's not a punch. That's a wave away. And mm. no, no disrespect to the scientists. Okay, Let's see the hang longer on. version here. There's a longer version I'm looking at now. Oh, it's multiple punches. Multiple. <laughs> at, at best, a shove away, but looks. I, I could call that a punch. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, it does have a kind of a springing action to it. These yeah. octop- octopodes are dicks, or oc- octopuses. We did find out in an episode of a couple of years ago that octopi is wrong. The pedantic plural of octopus that everyone <laughs> is actually incorrect. It's right, so it's octopuses. It is octopuses. Or you could say octopodes because it's what Greek instead of Latin. Yep. Yeah. So, so it says it. I oh uh, god, science yeah, alert! I'm gonna skip. I'm the, the opening so paragraph octo- doesn't octo- even. So it's, it's octopuses or octopuses if you're talking about multiple James Bond movies. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it so I'm I'm skipping over the the intro paragraph here with science alert, you little trying oh, yeah, I'm to editorialize about 2020. The, the octopus performs a swift explosive motion with one arm directed at a specific fish, which we refer to as punching. I I like that. That's a scientist who's never thrown one, but has probably received one. it sounds like something straight out of the simpsons which which we refer to as punching (laughs) i i have interpreted what you have done as a punch sir i put it to you you have not merely shoved me (laughs) well so while this remarkable, rather nasty-sounding behavior might seem like it comes from a place of direct conflict between different animal species, researchers say, that's not the whole story. In fact, this antisocial fish-punching phenomenon, which scientists term active displacement of fish, <laughs> occurs... Again, sir, you have actively displaced my nose. <laughs> It occurs in the midst of collaborative hunting efforts in which octopuses and fish team up to chase and pr- trap prey together. So these are hunting buddies, and they've tur- one of them has turned on the other. It's the Dick Cheney of octopuses. <laughs> so marine biologist Eduardo Sampaio from the University of Lisbon says, Octopuses and fish are known to hunt together, taking advantage of the other's morphology and hunting strategy. Since multiple partners join, this creates a complex network where investment and payoff can be unbalanced, giving rise to partner control mechanisms. In much the same way as you or I might try to elbow out fellow diners at a buffet, okay, this partner control mechanism therefore seeks to establish a sense of control and dominance in a food free-for-all. God, partner control mechanism is such a great euphemism. <laughs> it really is. An elbowing at a buffet. Um, it's just that part that partner control, when delivered by an octopus, is a tad more brutal than your average buffet queue experience, says Science Alert, again editorializing. Uh, the researchers say, To this end, the octopus performs a swift, explosive motion with one arm directed at a specific p- fish partner, which we refer to as punching. <laughs> In their study, Sampaio and his team observed interactions between octopus cyana and a number of different fish species in the Red Sea, including tailspot squirrelfish, black tip, and lyre-tail groupers, amongst others. See, so- I think the, uh, the, the, the interesting thing about this is that octopuses and fish hunt together. That's, uh, that's yeah. the interesting But The idea that the octopus occasionally gets annoyed with the fish and gives <laughs> them a slap if they're not pulling their weight... Or is, 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 I would have said that's the least interesting bit about it, no? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that they they get together for one last heist. They, they team up. <laughs> Going in style. <laughs> <laughs> so, Interspecies safari. 
I do yeah. think there's a Disney film in this without there's a Pixar movie in it without a doubt, you know. Of just getting together a rag dag Ocean's Eleven. I mean it's it's right there, isn't it? <laughs> oh my god. It's right there. <laughs> How are we missing that? <laughs> How did that that's and again another pun, that's served on a platter. <laughs> really? uh, or if it's a Netflix documentary, it's my octopus boxing coach. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Uh, the researchers hypothesize that much of the punching is designed to essentially keep the fish in line during hunts, whether deterring them from prey, relocating their position in the pack, or even evicting them from the hunt altogether. Sometimes in cases where hanger-on fish are not contributing to the hunt, so it is pulling their weight, basically acting as parasites hoping to reap the spoils of others' labor, an octopus might punch a fish on the basis of simple competition, the team suggests, in order to gain better access to the prey itself. I don't think it's a proper hunt until the octopus is riding on the back of a seahorse and wearing a red jacket. <laughs> then it's a proper hunt. Otherwise, it's just a... It's you know, on. It's just, it's just amateur hour. <laughs> There's some crab saboteurs in the back. <laughs> they are the coyotes of the sea or yeah. hyenas or something. I don't know. But it does say fish punching doesn't always seem to occur for... Fish punching. <laughs> I don't, I don't. It's already become a term. Like we yeah. just deal, we just gl- I just glossed over as if it was the most normal phrase. I in know the world. it's just entered the vocabulary, like social distancing or hanging chads or any of those <laughs> things over the years. But so fish punching doesn't always seem to occur for immediately practical reasons. On two occasions, the researchers observed punching take place, even when the sudden strike didn't appear to be related to pre-securing attempts. The researchers say in these cases, two different theoretical scenarios are possible. In the first one, benefits are disregarded entirely by the octopus and punching is a spiteful behaviour used to impose a cost on the fish. In the other theoretical scenario, punching may be a form of aggression with delayed benefits, i.e. direct negative uh, reciprocity or punishment, where the octopus pays a small cost to impose a heavier one on the misbehaving partner in an effort to promote collaborative behaviour in the following interactions. Hmm. So it, it's either to try and keep the fish in line, either because they already have gone out of line or preemptively, or it's just because the octopus is a dick. I like the idea of punching someone is imposing a cost on them. It's a great euphemism yeah. for <laughs> that's, that's impose the a cost on the, your ass. The Simpsons style of the bully, the bully, yeah, bu- exactly. bully dialogue. I'm just imposing a theoretical cost on you. Man. <laughs> Uh, he imposed the cost out of me. Yes. <laughs> Stop po- promoting collaborative behaviour in yourself. <laughs> what was the? What was the? Was it active displacement? That was that the one from earlier. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. Many this, is, this is an excellent, uh, just a whole new vocabulary of bullying. Now I've, I've developed. It, I guess that's if you're a research scientists you have to do that you can't just be writing like one twatted the other you have to come up with really specific <laughs> definitions because it's science yeah i i i mean oct- octopuses are obviously incredibly intelligent creatures and they you know there's been all these uh stories of them getting out of their tanks and doing stuff and then getting back into the tanks without anybody realizing for days and all that sort of sneaking around so the idea of them having developed a healthy spite is uh, is definitely not beyond uh, the realms of possibility, is it? Uh, yeah, I think. I, mean, I think spite is uh, definitely a, you know, it's part of our evolution, isn't it? I think once you figure out how to unscrew a jar, the next step is uh, learning spite. 
Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. like messing with Rubik's cubes and stuff. So, like, yeah. the, the octopus species are definitely amongst the highest intelligence, if not the highest intelligence of non-human animals. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's perfectly possible for one of them to bear a grudge or just to be a bit of an asshole. Or perhaps even return something to a store just out of spite, like Seinfeld <laughs> did in that episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> As Again. the octopus was saying to the researchers the other day. <laughs> Late 80s, early 90s, it just lodges. <laughs> I can't get it out of there. <laughs> um, there. There has been a big story that happened in the last few weeks that we haven't had a chance to cover yet, which I'm going to put one version that I'm picking arbitrarily from Google in the show notes, and hopefully it'll be a... I, we, I should have gone through and picked the best version that many people sent in, but here we go. Let's hope sciencemag.org has a decent version. This is the protein folding story where... The ah, D- good. I'm, I was hoping you were going to pick up on the protein folding story. Well, <laughs> so DeepMind, <laughs> the... Uh, the AI that I think has been bought out by Google is originally a UK-based company. Right. But uh, artificial intelligence has solved one of biology's grand challenges, predicting how proteins curl up from a linear chain, chain of amino acids into 3D shapes that allow them to carry out life's tasks. Today, leading structural biologist, this t- today is about a month ago, and organizers of a biennial protein folding competition, which... I didn't even know that was an option. I would have been entering it every year. But um, they announced the achievement by researchers at DeepMind that say uh, they say the DeepMind method will have far-reaching effects, among them dramatically speeding the creation of new medications. What the DeepMind team has managed to achieve, says Janet Thornton, director emeritus of the European Bioinformatics Institute, is fantastic and will challenge the future of structural biology and protein research. This is a 50-year-old problem, adds John Malt, a structural biologist at the University of Maryland and co-founder of the competition. I, I thought I'd never see it in my lifetime. The competition, <laughs> the competition is called Critical Assessment of Protein Structure Prediction, or CASP. And again, could have been entering it all these years. I know. Right, what are we doing? So, well, the, the, the thing is, I, I know myself that if I did try and fold any proteins, that uh, my wife would then point out that I had not folded them correctly <laughs> and would, would just refold the proteins. I'm just going to do it, properly. okay? Yeah. <laughs> the, the trickiest part is when you have to get the little bit of the protein under your chin. Yeah. Just to... <laughs> I just use one of those um, plexiglass rectangles. It really keeps the folds uniform. Does that, do they work? I guess they work. That's what they do at, like, department stores, don't they? I know. You can never fold your proteins like they can at the dry cleaners. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you can't get it back into the packets. I don't know how they do it. By the way, speaking of, we were talking about denaturing alcohol. Isn't this sort of renaturing? Because don't proteins get denatured when they are untangled? I guess, yeah. Except you're not physically doing it to the protein. You're just working out the, the structure mathematically or computationally. Right. So, the the human... By the way, have you... I, I, I love, by the way, I think my favorite sentence of these two paragraphs that you've read is, this is a 50-year-old problem. And I, I mean, that's, that's, that really sounds like somebody who works in advertising. Yeah. You know, it's like, here is the problem, and we found the solution. I, none of us were aware of this as being a problem. <laughs> none of us entered this competition that you speak of. 
No, I think the guy who said that is just 50 years old and it's his yeah. problem. He said this is a 50-year-old problem. It's, it's, like, is... it's like the cosmetics industry. They're just inventing problems for themselves to solve. Exactly. Like, oh, I guess, I guess you need to do armpit tinting now. <laughs> you guys don't you guys don't bleach your armpits it's um uh, I, but yeah I, I suppose this is it has been about 50 years since we were able to know the the shape of it, things like dna molecules and protein molecules mm-hmm. and so the human body use oh by the way just off completely off topic but while we're still talking about folding things have any of you managed to do there are youtube tutorials online for both folding fitted sheets and the method of folding a t-shirt instantly and i've never managed to do either of them satisfactorily i they're one of those ones where i they'll come up occasionally on my twitter feed and i'll go i will i'm gonna get a t-shirt and i'm gonna follow this and then i don't i i I, I, I still haven't managed to make it work you sort of you hold one you hold you sort of cross your arms and you hold one bit by near the sleeve and the other bit you sort of pinch about three quarters of the way down and a third of the way in, and and then you, it's just a, like a single flipping motion where you uncross your arms and then fo- and then fold it over, and then you have a t-shirt that's basically folded instantly. It's a but... t-shirt. Like who gives a shit? Like why would you learn how to fold it? You just put it in, fold it in half, and put it in the drawer. Or it's roll a t-shirt. It it's not. I mean, it's one thing about folding your shirt. It's no, no one. What kind of a place? Could you show up to where people would judge you because you're wearing a T-shirt that hasn't been stored correctly in a drawer? <laughs> I understand if, if you haven't ironed this, that or the other. But but who are so specific in their fashion <laughs> demands that they would judge you for an improperly creased T-shirt? And that you need the extra five seconds spared by this quick method. The one that was useful was the fitted sheet one. That yeah, one actually, that's very useful. That one actually, I still didn't manage to make it look nearly as good as it did in the video or in the packet, but I did manage to get a fitted sheet into something approaching a flat folded object that could be put away. I like that we've moved the conversation away from protein to yeah. things we understand. I know it's a science <laughs> podcast and everything, but I like that we introduced it by, by speaking about, about protein folding and then going, ah, you know, yeah, let's talk about that. I say we talk about deck chairs. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, much more complicated than they should be. Like, every so often you get a deck mm-hmm. chair and you're like, I, I don't know how to put this back. I don't know how to recollapse this. Yeah. Or to I, make the back a little bit higher while you're sitting on it. Yeah. yeah. I always, when talking about folding chairs, if I give, give any advice to anyone who has a new baby or is having a baby, um, I, I've two, my kids are like eight and ten now, but... Buy your own pram. Do not accept a gift of a pram from anyone. A stroller, as you may say. Do not accept a gift of a stroller from another human being. Because whatever, and no matter how good the stroller is you have, you will fucking hate that thing at some point. (laughs) You will be trying to fold it with one hand while holding the baby with the other, or you'll be trying to do something, or just it'll jam something. You will grow to hate that inanimate object more than anything in the world. And whoever gave you it, you'll <laughs> fucking hate them. <laughs> you will, it could be your closest friend and you will curse them and the person who spawned them. So don't, that's my, just on the subject of folding things, 
don't don't accept a gift of a folding straw. Also, it might be haunted. It might be, you know. It... There's also that, obviously. I mean, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah, don't accept one of those Victorian ones that people are always giving away <laughs> <laughs> with matching parasol. You got in a curio shop, and it came with three very specific instructions <laughs> for some reason. So, the human body uses tens of thousands of different proteins, each a string of dozens to many hundreds of amino acids. The order of these amino acids dictates how the myriad pushes and pulls between them give rise to proteins' complex 3D shapes, which in turn determine how they function. Knowing these shapes helps researchers devise drugs that can lodge in proteins' pockets and crevices, and being able to synthesize proteins with a desired structure could speed up the development of enzymes that make biofuels and degrade waste plastic. Like basically, everything, everything living or organic in existence is made up of proteins. Hmm. So... For decades, researchers deciphered proteins' 3D structures using experimental techniques such as X-ray crystallography or cryo-electron microscopy, cryo-EM for short. But such methods can take months or years and don't always work. Structures have been sold for only about 170,000 of the more than 200 million proteins discovered across life forms. In the 60s, researchers realized if they could work out all individual interactions within a protein sequence, they could predict its 3D shape. With hundreds of amino acids per protein and numerous ways each pair can interact. However, the number of possible structures per sequence was astronomical. Computational scientists jumped on the problem, but progress was slow. So, here comes, here comes the CASP competition that was launched in 1994 by Malt and his colleagues, which takes place every two years. Entrants get an amino acid sequence sequences for about 100 proteins whose structures are not known. Some groups compute a structure for each sequence, while others determine it experimentally. The organizers then compare the computational predictions with the lab results and give the predictions a global distance test score, GDT. Scores above 90 on the 0 to 100 scale are considered on par with experimental methods, says Malt. So... For small, simple proteins, they had it done for, since 1994, but for larger, challenging comp- proteins, computational scores were about 20 out of 100, Ooh. which Andre Lupus, a CASP judge and an evolutionary biologist at the Max Planck Institute, says it was a complete catastrophe. <coughs> a catastrophe, I say. By 2016, competing groups have reached scores of about 40 for the highest, hardest proteins, mostly by drawing insights from known structures of proteins that were closely related to the CASP targets. So, DeepMind first competed in 2018. Its algorithm called AlphaFold relied on this comparative strategy. But AlphaFold also incorporated a computational approach called Deep Learning, in which the software is trained on vast data troves, in this case the sequences of structures of known proteins, and learns to spot patterns. DeepMind won handily, beating the competition by an average of 15% on each structure, and winning GD scores of up to 60 for the hardest targets. I mean, well, it does. Still... Sa- Sorry, go ahead. It, it does sound like the sort of thing that that computers were made for. It sounds like exactly the sort of thing yep. that you're just going to go. Oh, you mean really, really long, complicated, but, uh, but calculations spe- based on massive numbers? Hand it over. But specifically, AI computers and this this deep mind technology, which that can learn from its yeah, that learns from itself. That doesn't work the way traditional traditional computers and algorithms work where a human programs them with what they think the algorithm should be and then it just runs for long enough with enough computing power that it solves it in this case ai is kind of 
effectively creating its own algorithm, but in a mysterious way that you never truly know. It's it's much closer to the way humans learn, where you you can't work out what the program is. It well, just when you of... say when you say in a mysterious way, which you never truly know, I mean that for from for someone who's someone like me, that's that's any computer. <laughs> <laughs> Computers have been doing world. that since the since the eighties, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that's the mystery of Pong. <laughs> but but the weird thing about AI uh, systems is they are this sort of this black box that you you teach it that you show it the initial things and then it starts just uh running through its cycles and then eventually it sort of recognizes these patterns but you don't know exactly how it's done it i mean maybe i watch too much science fiction but i thought that we had computers that knew how to do that already i thought the whole self-learning learning Uh, from its mistakes and and the and the ability to to improvise and stuff like that was stuff that computers could already do it's definitely they've be it's been this kind of thing has been refined more and more over the last few years and it yeah it's been so i'm pretty sure DeepMind is the same system behind alpha go which is the the chat uh the go um mm-hmm. uh the the first version that can actually beat a human at the game of the board game of go yeah. and also is now the strongest chess um computer or chess program well when will it learn the folly of thermonuclear war (laughs) has it has it has it yeah no one's bothered to teach it tic-tac-toe yet exactly has it played tic-tac-toe with itself yet because that's the (laughs) that's when it really wakes up to itself (laughs) (laughs) i think as a precautionary measure that should be the first thing you do to any ai before it runs away from you and then if it gets you know if it starts to uh to, to, to cause problems, you simply say to it, I am a liar, and then <laughs> yes. it will just blow up. It <laughs> <laughs> spins around and we'll flies always, off. Why did it have a head? Yeah. We'll always have that over them. We'll always have that <laughs> trick up our sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> One thing. But the predictions, the predictions were still too coarse to be useful, says John Jumper. Who heads Alpha Falls development at Deep Mind and is also an '80s uh, action hero. <laughs> I, I just, I mean, because again, you say sweater, but for a guy whose name is Jumper to be in charge of folding is, oh. is, is, is some more nominative determinism. <laughs> That's great. So John says we knew how far we were from biological rev- relevance. To to do better, Jumper and his colleagues combined deep learning with an attention algorithm that mimics the way a person might assemble a jigsaw puzzle, first connecting pieces in small clumps, in this case case clusters of amino acids, and then searching for ways to join the clumps in a larger whole. Again, again, he has to be mimicking the right person who does a jigsaw puzzle. You do not (laughs) want it to mimic the way, say, I would do a jigsaw puzzle, because then the computer would just go, oh, fuck this, (laughs) and stop doing it. (laughs) Working... Working with a computer network built around 120 machine learning processors, they train the algorithm on all 170,000 or so known protein structures. And it worked. Across target proteins in this year's CASP, AlphaFold achieved a median GDT score of 92.4 Ooh, for, the yes. most ch- 
for the they most finally they broke that arbitrary thing they said yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that number that could have been anything they could have said that at 60 and it broke it a couple of years ago yep <laughs> but that that is a remarkable that uh, is you know, I'm, um, I'm taking the piss but yeah, it's I, incredible I'm... For for the most challenging proteins, Alpha Fold scored a median of eighty seven point two five points above the next. Uh, oh, oh sorry, eighty seven rather, which is twenty five points above the next best predictions. It's B plus, yeah, yeah. It even mm-hmm. excelled at solving structures of proteins that sit wedged in cell membranes, which are central to many human diseases, but notoriously difficult to solve with X ray crystallography. Uh, Venki uh, Ramakrishnan, who's a structural biologist at the Medical Research Council Lab of Molecular Biology, calls the results a stunning advance on the protein-folding problem. So, all of the groups in this year's competition improved, says Milt, but with AlphaFold, the game has changed. The the organizers even worried DeepMind may have been cheating somehow, so Lupus... (laughs) Lupus set a, set a special challenge, a membrane protein from a, special, from a species of archaea, an ancient group of microbes. For ten years, his research team had tried every trick in the book to get an X-ray crystal structure of the protein. We couldn't solve it. But AlphaFold had no trouble. It returned a detailed image of a three-part protein with two long helical arms in the middle. The model enabled Lupus and his colleagues to make sense of their X-ray data and within half an hour, they had fit their experimental results to AlphaFold's predicted structure. It's almost perfect, says Lupus. They could not possibly have cheated on this. I don't know how they do it. Hey, Andy. Well, <laughs> while we're talking about protein folding, do you? I I, I can't even carry. I can't even do this properly because we were <laughs> we, we we were going to plug the. Uh, there's a great courses plus course that specifically references protein folding that we thought would be a perfectly neat link that we were going to record straight after recording the episode with Ed, and then we'll drop it in, and we'll talk about that course, and it'll all link together, and, you know, we can talk about how The Great Courses Plus has courses on everything, but specific, and not least the thing that we're talking about right now, and how well-covered it is. Uh, and then the world caught fire. So, yeah. <laughs> in between us recording with Ed, and then we got off the recording and looked at my phone, and apparently the government was being attacked. So... I, th- I think I might. I think I might turn to a less scientific course. I might want to find out something a bit more about the world and how things work. Well, that's a great thing about the Great Courses Plus. You can find instruction on virtually any study. So, what did you find that is more relevant to the task at hand? Well, what I'm going to start looking at is the Skeptic's Guide to American History, because there's a lot of constitutional talk that's been happening in the last few days about what can and can't be done. And I want to know how much of that is true and where these various rules about the Electoral College and so on came from and what they actually mean, other than what I'm told they mean mean through Twitter and YouTube videos that tell the truth that they don't want you to know. (laughs) Right. I mean, I guess as a uh, non-native of of this country, you didn't have all the standard civics lessons. So the Great Courses Plus is a great place to bone up on that subject or any other there's also um there's law school for everyone constitutional law available in the great courses plus taught by eric berger who is a professor of law and uh, associate dean of faculty at university of nebraska college of law Uh, everything as we've talked about before everything you'll find on the great courses plus is taught by top-notch instructors yep uh, in their fields the course i'm looking at is taught by dr mark stoller who is professor emeritus of history at the university of vermont so again um probably slightly more knowledgeable than facts wizard underscore five right 
So yes, if you want to start off this new year with um, all kinds of self-improvement and uh, you know ways to thrive and strive to be better, there's no better way than trying out the Great Courses Plus and checking out all the courses that they have to offer. You can, you, you can build a better financial plan. You can constr- control stress and make it work for you. Live sustainably, support a more regenerative world, learn to play guitar like a pro, like I've talked about, or you can learn about the Constitution and, and see what's. Uh, I, I know that's that the thing. It, it, it does cover um, it does cover some very academic topics, but then also this, you know, courses taught in relaxation and mindfulness by psychology professors, and then how to shred on the guitar. And you were you were learning all about beer at the end of last year, right? So. I mean, I I was gonna uh, for twenty twenty one. I was gonna stop. Um, drinking on weekdays but um uh, today came and i'm making a manhattan so now i'm like wait is there a mixology course in here I'm, I, I'm not sure if there is but uh you can find pretty much anything you want on the great courses uh and if you go to the great courses plus.com slash probably you'll get a free 14-day trial to check out whatever courses you're interested in which is a great way to get a jump start on those resolutions so yeah like and again they're they're taught by people who are chosen both for their knowledge of the subject and for their skill as teachers and speakers so well worth it you get a free trial you've got nothing to lose and we we've we've been sponsored by them for a while now we love them so once again if you go to the greatcoursesplus.com slash probably and you will get a 14-day trial with unlimited access to any of their lectures for free give it a shot I think the the idea of being able to then synthesize enzymes that uh, that digest plastic is the the most uh, you know hopeful um, aspect of this, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's an end to the the forever notion of plastic, and just the fact that everything now has microplastics in it. Like every ocean in the world just has just any cup, you just a cup of water from the ocean will have. Sure. A silly number of microscopic bits of plastic in them. Yeah, but just the idea of being able to, of not having to throw it away, of, of being able to, of being able to feed plastic into a digester and have base chemicals come out that maybe can be used right. or, or are you know inert enough to, to, to be flushed away. That's amazing. It's, I also think the, you know, the uh, potential for vandalism once you have a protein that destroys plastic is also, uh, you know, not to be sniffed at. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just, just because what's the cost? Just it, for it pranks. Yeah. <laughs> you kids just, just picking up a cup and it's just it's just the drink just falls through at the bottom. Exactly, just oh, you know, okay, just just okay. throwing a cup at somebody's plastic chair. You know, it's just, <laughs> watch it digest. <laughs> um, and also, I mean, it could also be used for for medical purposes, which would be exciting, right? No, no, not <laughs> sorry. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, obviously. There's that too, you know. But I, I did find out, I think, I don't know whether we talked about this on the show. I think we did. But that plastic recycling is mostly a lie propagated by the plastic, by the oil companies <coughs> who make plastics. Oh, is it just ever since China Im- implemented that system where they're not buying the world's trash anymore to recycle it? or Well, well basically, so they've paper recycling is pretty well sorted out and glass recycling they can do pretty well but most plastic recycling just doesn't happen yeah the vast majority of plastic that you that you that you separate out still just ends up in a landfill but the oil companies who are not exactly strangers to disinformation 
put out like help advertise the fact that all these sort of plastic recycling initiatives to make you think that all the plastic's being recycled so that they can keep using their oil to make plastic. Mm. Which sounds conspiracy theory-ish if it weren't relatively well documented and there's no real good evidence of plastic being recycled very well. Yeah, I, I'm unaware, I have to admit, of, of, of that. But I don't, I don't just, I don't, you know, I, I've nearly said I don't not believe you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I could imagine that. There's also, um, I, I think I quote this podcast too much, but do you guys ever listen to 99% Invisible? No, but I it's, will from now on. You have to. Uh, it's Yeah, it's it's one of the better podcasts. I think our listeners would like it. Also, free plug. Um, but there was an episode about this program called National Sword that China implemented in, I'm looking at the article, 2018, that um, is just a ban on foreign recyclables. Um, so yeah, they banned four categories and 24 types of imports, um, mostly on the heels of, <clears throat> excuse me, a documentary about people living in, <clears throat> excuse me, jeez, living in like near squalor uh, on the outskirts of these um, dumps and, and recycling plants in China that sort of got the whole country mad. And they're like, wait, why are we in this business of um, buying the world's recyclables and processing them? So they just said, lock it all up. So uh, no one changed their recycling policies in countries that used to ship off these, you know, containers full of plastics and things to China. So we still collect them all. And now they just, Go in dumps. And I mean, what is the recourse? What is the recourse if your local, you know, council or whatever your local government is saying that they're recycling stuff and then they're not, and then they're just going, "Oh, this is too difficult," and then they just stick it in landfill? Yeah. Can you? Because can you sue your garbage collection? A good for question. Misrepresentation. Yeah, I don't know because they can still go like, "We're making the best effort we can." That's just rubbish. Because over here, they can they can actually. I mean, they don't. I think it's only ever happened once. But they can, like, they can refuse to collect your your garbage if you don't put you know if you, if you put plastic bottles in your straight in your regular trash and not in your recycling bin, they can eventually just go. We're not we're not collecting your trash anymore. Or they can fine you for improper use of the system or whatever. Well, yeah. if, we really wanted, if we wanted to clean things up for real, I'm, and now I'm going to quote a different episode of 99% Invisible, we could do um, what I believe Taiwan did when they, they had like the biggest um, littering pollution problem in the world, and they just said, okay, we have to do something drastic, and now um, you buy bags uh, to put different things in, and these are the only things that the government trash collection will take is, is things that have been put in these bags. So you, you've pre-bought uh, everything and you, you are hyper aware of everything that you use. There are no public trash cans. No stores have trash cans. Everything that you buy, you are taking on the burden of personally disposing of whatever waste that is. And these trucks come through like two or three times a day in every city playing some song that now the kids all know and love and they run out and the, the, <laughs> the trucks have like, song? yeah, yeah, seriously. And there's like three different trucks in a row that all collect different color bags and there are people uh, policing them instantly looking through your stuff. Like, if you actually get caught with the wrong thing in the wrong bag, you'll get a huge fine right away. And in the span of like 10 years, they became the cleanest country in the world or, or something like, like that. Oh, you hear stories like that. I, that was I know he's a, from I an American. Taiwan, yeah, yeah. From an American perspective, you will know perfectly well that that sounds like science fiction. <laughs> the chance of that ever being brought in in somewhere like the States, where, let's be fair, people don't even want to wear masks. 
during right. a pandemic. Yeah. So the idea of somebody inspecting their trash to make sure it's being thrown away properly, never. Yeah. yeah. Taiwan is also the country where their president is an epidemiologist, and as a result, they were one of the first places to completely get on top of COVID. Also uh, helps to be an island, but yeah. But yeah, but also, yeah, the, the UK is an island, or Britain is anyway, and uh, they they didn't manage it. <laughs> yeah, good, good point. Good point. It's, um, the island, uh, islandness is necessary, but not sufficient to actually eradicate uh, uh, COVID in your community. Yeah, but, but like, it, like you were saying, Ed, it is, there are certain things that con- certain countries can do because it's within their national their makeup and their national sort of personality that countries like britain and uh, the u.s just would never be able to do because people just would instantly take issue with it absolutely i I think it is and it comes down to i think a a willingness to hand over control of personal freedom to the state and it's just something that's not in the makeup of most people in the u.s or the uk uh and, you know, some would argue that, that it's a good thing that it's not in people's makeup. But I think it's a, a, a lack of trust in in government just would mean people just wouldn't have it. Yeah, I've been fascinated with everyone's conspiracy thinking about um, lockdown rules and how this is how it starts. I'm like, this is how what starts? Like, yeah, obviously, yeah. I, there are misguided laws and rules in place, yeah. but those aren't. There, I guess misguided is the wrong word. There are things that maybe aren't this the most effective. This is how being able to hug your mum again starts. Right. I, I, I just wondered, like, what, what do you think these like these bureaucrats are hoping for long term? Because like, well, once they put these rules in place, they don't ever take them away again once the thing's been solved. I'm like, do you really not think that everyone's main goal is to save lives, even if they're not always doing it the most efficient way? Like, how could that not be? Everyone's ma- like, what is this grand plan? It's also not true. It's all that, that the people have a tendency to bring that one up of go, give me one example where the government took away your, you know, your, your liberty and then gave it back to you again. You go, fucking like, World War Two. World War Two. Yeah. Example, you know? Ra- rationing yeah. during World yeah. War Two and then stopping rationing once you didn't have to anymore. But, you know how we no longer have to have blackout curtains and a guy comes around at night to make sure that there's no crack of light showing. Yeah. Wait, what's that from? Hold on. What? That, that was. That was in World War Two. In, in in Britain, and particularly London, there went, during the Blitz, the bombers would come over, and they'd look for light. And so everyone would have to have, like, there were no street lights, and people would have to have blackout curtains mm. on their windows. And a warden wow. would come round and yeah. check to make sure that your curtain was shut properly, and there wasn't even like a chink of light coming through. Was to, that? shown to be effective at all or was that something they were hoping would would change bombing strategies um i i don't that's a great question would you show? I, don't, I don't know the effectiveness of it but i know they did they did do some really sneaky uh, sneaky and clever things like even building decoy cities and de- decoy yeah. they call that three amigoing yeah right. <laughs> it would be very hard to uh to, to to say definitively how effective it was because it would have been very unethical to have a control group. <laughs> right. it, would, it wouldn't have been fair to say to everyone in Bristol, everybody put lights in your greenhouses and throw open the curtains. Uh, well, uh, well, those of you in Bath, you, you know. It's a proper double blind test by actually making blind people do it. Yeah. <laughs> but even, even on small scale, like I used to live in the city in, in, in Glasgow and uh, in like 92, I think it was, to combat 
street violence. They they just brought in a thing where if you had to be in a nightclub by midnight, you know, and, and nightclubs were not allowed to any entry after midnight. So that way, if you were on the street after midnight, you couldn't say, oh, I'm on my way to the tunnel or I'm on my way to such and such because you weren't allowed in because they just brought in this thing that you couldn't get into a nightclub just after midnight. For the briefest They second, brought it in for, uh, it lasted for about a year. What's that? Oh, no, go, go for it. You're saying it, it lasted for about a year? It lasted for about a year they did it, you know. And then it didn't really work. It didn't do it. So they just got rid of it. But I'm just saying in a small scale, that's a classic example of a law brought in, you know, to combat one thing, a freedom that was taken away, and they went, and they just gave it back again. It happens yeah. all the fucking time. Um, yeah, it's such a just, disingenuous, yeah. For the briefest second, I passed your first sentences. You had to be in a nightclub by midnight. Just whatever you were doing, wherever <laughs> you were. <laughs> I don't care if you got school in the morning. Nineteen year old men sitting at home being dragged out of their houses and pushed through the door of techno clubs. (laughs) (laughs) You know the score, Grandad, it's nine it's midnight. It um There's all Charlestoning to the to the beats of (laughs) Skrillex. So um, yeah, so so anyway, just as soon as you said in Taiwan they had this revolutionary idea and they got rid of it. As soon as you say revolutionary idea you know, it's just, it's already, well, then that's that's off the books. If you're talking for about a massive, large-scale change in behavior, yeah. particularly a negative yeah. one, then it's just it's just something that I, I we in the Western world then, let's say that. I don't want to single out the U.S. as a place where you couldn't do this. It's just, uh, it, it's just anathema to us. It's just uh, yeah, not I mean, in our you- behavioral makeup. I think it's I think it's fair to say that it is a uniquely American thing because I like I I don't know I think maybe our 250 year experiment in this federalist like in this you know pretty even distribution of power between states and the national government like maybe it doesn't work like I really think <laughs> that our our diversity like everyone's always says diversity is strength like in some things it is I don't think diversity of ideology is strength and our country should really be like five or ten countries because we're never going to get behind, just we're never going to have the esprit de corps to be like, yeah, we have to come together and do this thing that's going to be hard for all. I mean, I guess we did in World War II, I, I, but I think we've changed so much now. Like, let's just split up the country. I'm sorry if that's seditious, but uh, <laughs> it, it, like, if COVID has shown us anything, it's like we can't come together on anything in ways yeah. that other countries uh, are a little bit better at. It, it does. COVID really, did, I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but it did really surprise me by the things that became sort of wedge issues and points of political affiliation. Just to, the idea that wearing a mask could somehow become a, a partisan issue. Yeah, it's just yes. ridiculous. Well, I've I've always been fascinated by this. Is, and and it's a thing that you see played out in the states, particularly. But again, you also see it in the UK. Is how certain things end up dividing along left ver- versus right. Things that you think are neutral, and and a lot of it seems to come down to things, particularly when it comes to things like global warming or even gun ownership and stuff like that. You have to kind of you, you have to unpick it and and go, oh, that's why you trace it back to why people on the right think this and people on the left think that you would think you would think it would be a bit more of a grab bag where you would have people who who think global warming is a great threat uh but but guns are uh are, are a god-given right or people who think that you know 
COVID is a threat, we should all be wearing masks, but also believe in smaller governments. You know what yes. I mean? But yet everything just always seems to fall uh, along these certain lines where yeah. everybody... Is, is it just... More that funding we're all... for road building correlates with uh, being okay with abortion. Like, like how do those two things... Yeah, it's so weird. It's weird, yeah. It, it, just, it, it is because of the two-party system that everybody ends up coalescing and just deciding that they're on one side of a line when it comes to every issue. And, and it's almost like, okay, we're going we're gonna to have guns and, and, and you guys can have uh, uh, trust in Big Pharma. And, you know, know. sticking teams, yeah. It it is odd, but yeah, I think the two-party system does cause just everyone to shuffle to each side of the line. Um, I think that is exactly it. We sorry, go ahead. No, what were you going to say, Annie? I was going to say I realized we actually have a story that uh, transitions well from this. The the thing I was talking about with Taiwan figuring out how to uh, figure out what to do with their garbage. Go for it. Um, We. By the way, thank you everyone who sent in stories over the last couple of weeks. And also thank you, a bunch of people sent in screenshots of their year-end Spotify roundup that they got sent with us featuring prominently, if not at the top of the of their playlist. So thank you everyone who's been listening to far too much of us. We appreciate that. Yeah, there was one listener who, uh, I forgot if we got an email after it was just an Instagram, Instagram comment, but um, the, the number of hours of probably science over the course of her 2020 was in the high thousands i think and then but she was did. like just so you know i do listen to it to go to sleep I was like, oh, i'll take it uh, however uh, you must have started awake so there was some portion of yeah. it that was also i i'm sorry for whatever is seeping into your skull subconsciously while you while you snooze yeah yeah so what's uh, the so story andy i don't think that we covered this in december if we did you know stop me but uh europe plans a space claw to capture orbiting junk it sounds familiar to me but i, di- I didn't see it in any recent episodes? Did we talk about a space claw? To I, pick I up feel junk? like this is something that has come up before, but it's, it's, right. I know but, Justin Braw sent in this story last month. Yeah, so, so it's dated December first, and it, we didn't bring it up in the last month. So maybe it's just a different version of something else someone has worked on. You but might, you might have just been watching some uh, James Bond movies over the Christmas break, <laughs> right? Uh, so the European Space, space Agency. Today finalized a con- today meaning December first uh, finalized a contract to launch a mission in 2025 that will be the first to capture and dispose of a piece of orbiting space junk. The Clear Space One mission, built by Swiss startup Clear Space, will home in on a piece of debris the size of a washing machine, grapple it with a four-armed claw, and escort it down to a lower orbit, where the duo will enter the atmosphere and burn up. Just grabbing one, and then wow, that's okay. Uh, Darren McKnight, a space debris expert. At the, t- at the technology company Centauri applauds ESA for being one of the few agencies to take action, but he's concerned by the slow progress in removing orbital debris, which he believes will increasingly threaten working satellites and astronauts. If we don't get started soon, we're going to be in big trouble, he says. We need to take baby steps fast. So, wait, fast baby steps? What are those <laughs> <looking>? <laughs> <laughs> A sprinting toddler. Uh, the space around Earth is becoming increasingly crowded because satellites have traditionally been left in orbit when their useful life ends. In higher orbits, they can remain there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Discarded rocket stages are another important source of space junk, if not nudged down into the atmosphere after use. The 5,500 launches over the 60 years of the space age have left 23,000 objects larger than a grapefruit in orbit. 
there are many million of, millions of smaller objects that can't be tracked. See, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure we covered this at an earlier point because I remember grapefruit-sized objects being okay. a real sticking point. Damn it! Okay. Well, no, hang on. It, 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 it's always grapefruit-sized objects. You could have been talking about anything to do with space and space junk, and the phrase "grapefruit-sized objects" would have come up before. Well, either way, we could say that this is an update to that story because they yeah. have finalized the contract to launch the mission in 2025. Right. So they're going to grab one piece of space junk. And bring it down, and then both the arm and the space junk will burn up in the atmosphere. One that's, of the 23,000 pieces. Wow. Yeah. That does seem quite labor-intensive. That's like, I'm going to take this vacuum cleaner, I'm going to suck up that bit of trash, and then take the vacuum cleaner and put it in an incinerator. And that is going to, that's, that's the start I'm going to make on cleaning up this house uh, it's the i know matt didn't grow up on snl i don't know if you did ed but it's it's phil hartman's anal retentive uh, carpenter character basically um so twenty three let's see yeah was uh, was it was snl broadcast in ireland in the no. 80s and 90s no no but the 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 only snl stuff we knew was there was you could get those vhs's of the best of jim belushi sorry the best of john belushi uh, the best of uh, Eddie Murphy and the best of, um, I think there was a best of Dan Aykroyd. And Bill and you could buy them. Early the, cast, I think yeah. The, yeah, yeah, it was, it was like, there was those best dubs. And we watched them and laughed them, even though we didn't get anything. We we were, like, there's a, there's a, there's a we're way off topic, but there was a, the best of Eddie Murphy one has a whole buckwheat thing with the, who, we didn't know who the fuck you didn't watch was. Little Rascals. We didn't know who the Little Rascals were. And it went on through the whole <laughs> video. And we're laughing, you know. But we're like, I don't, I don't know who any of these people are that they're parodying. I yeah. mean, even, even in the 80s. Not necessarily that they are parodying a thing and it's right. not just a character. Mm. It was a dated reference in the 80s, you know. <laughs> I mean, when was the Little Rascals? Was that... 50s 40s again don't know yeah yeah, yeah but it, i i've always been quite affronted by the fact that we don't we no one really watches snl over here and yet they will release snl movies and they will be lapped up with just the same enthusiasm over here as they are in the states so like the wayne's world movie when it came out everyone loved it even though they never fucking heard yeah. of the characters yeah, which you know, it like in the states, it's like a case of a character will reach critical mass on SNL. It'll be so big they'll go, "We have to give this character its own movie," and then just sell it to the Brits who just <laughs> watch it, even though they're <laughs> like fucking uh, one what one night at the Roxy. What that that made it over here. That it's, that that, didn't, that wasn't even a hit in the states, and no. people knew those characters. We've talked about this before. I had no idea until years after it came out that Wayne's World was even a character on SNL. I just, I just thought it was a standalone thing, character that was created for this film and its sequel. Oh, <laughs> I knew because my sister went and spent a summer in the States and came back that year just doing, hey, Ed Meister, do the fuck off, just quoting <laughs> all, all the, everything from SNL that, that was going on that year. So um, so I was aware of it. I think but I remember world... when it came out, I remember going, no one's going to watch this, no one's heard of these characters, and being I, wrong. I feel like those characters in Wayne's World aren't so specific that they require, I don't think it was that, I think you could watch that movie more than other SNL yeah. ones with no Co- context. Heads, and... I was baffled by. Right. 
Which, I mean, even I mean, the even sketch... still as a principle, it's like aliens on Earth. Okay, fine. But still, I just, like, the beats of it. Yeah, but yeah. All, it, it, Wayne's World, though, I mean, wasn't the whole point of their characters that they ran their own... They had their own public access TV show. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have that here. Oh, okay. Well, that <laughs> you know what I mean? And yet sense. still, it was like, here you go. Here's this thing we enjoy. You'll like it. And they fucking did. We lapped it up. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still, I don't know... Still, you know, two two funny people being idiots. It was, yeah. Uh, the Blues Brothers. That would be another one. You know, oh, that's a, yeah, very much. No idea. No one had heard of them. But yeah, I mean, that's also. I don't know that you had to. That wasn't really like a running joke that had a lot to it that you had to know about. It was just a good movie. No, I understand. Kind of, you don't. Yeah. Ha- you don't need to have watched it to get it. But the point was, they only got movies because everybody knew. Everybody knew them. They were a popular thing. Right. So right, you could right, then just right, build right. a movie around them. But. The fact that you could uh, put it this, like you could when you make a film in the UK, you have to think of it in terms of what do we put in it that the Americans will watch this, whether it's whether it's, you know, stick an American actor in it, like who's already got profile over over in the States or, or what. There's always got to be some sort of one eye on that market to play to that market, whereas the, the Americans who make films for the Americans and we'll still laugh them up like <laughs> the fucking idiots we are. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's no reason you would know Aykroyd and Belushi outside of SNL in that year, right? Uh, maybe no. Animal House. I forgot if that was before. No, that I, or not, I, yeah, and still yeah, to this day, there's a bunch of people who are famous in America because they had very successful SNL runs. But if they, if that didn't translate into future success, I have no idea who they are. Like, if they didn't manage to cross over to right, TV right. or f- other TV or movies, then not a clue. Well, you know, I know who Joe Piscopo is because he's in the Eddie Murphy Best Of video. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I know, knew him mostly as a reference that people would make about someone who was successful and then not successful. And as a reference about how people rarely get funnier once they get super jacked. <laughs> yeah, he was like the first, the first Kumail, I guess. I'm not saying Kumail got less funny, but uh, Piscopo was the uh, yeah. Annoyingly, I saw I saw Kumail do one of the last hot tub shows. Uh, it was like their anniversary show, and he was still funny. Which I don't, I don't. <laughs> God damn you! Yeah, yeah. I don't think that should be allowed. Once you reach a certain amount of muscle mass, then you've you've chosen your path. Right, you can't yeah. still be a good comedian. This is why I've kept the uh, healthy COVID spare tire around. And I'm afraid of getting too jacked. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. That's exactly what I've done. I, I'd, be, I'd be worried about how unfunny I'd become if I became too muscular. <laughs> By the way, on the late 90s SNL things, I feel like America was as baffled as England because I, th- I think Lorne Michaels saw the success of Billy Madison. I'm just guessing at this. Billy Madison was not uh, the SNL production company. It was not Broadway Video and Lauren was pissed that he hadn't like forced Sandler to stay with him for all future productions. So he was right. like, okay, we got to find our next ones. And that's when they turned out superstar ladies, man, night at the Roxbury. So I don't, I don't know. Night at the those... Roxbury. That was the name of it. So I couldn't remember yeah. the name of that one. Yeah. I don't think any of those were really, really beloved, like uh, culturally penetrating characters, nor did any of those movies do that well, <laughs> but yeah, they were trying. What was the uh, Al Franken one? Oh, that's right. I forgot. Stuart Smalley saves his family. There's also It's Pat. Remember the uh, the, the gender ambiguous character? Right. I, it, I think that cheap. one didn't even... 
I think that might be one that didn't even make the make it to the theatrical. Really, I didn't. Yeah, I wasn't aware Pat got got their own movie. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I think because uh, they were they were mad that they would lost um, this cash cow in Sandler. But by the way, I just googled I, uh, buckwheat. I don't know why I thought the fifties. I was afraid of going too early and sounding super dumb. But it, I was like, was that in the twenties? It was in the twenties. Right. Okay. Our, our guy and little <laughs> rascal. So that was already sixty years old as a reference when <laughs> Eddie Murphy was doing it. Speaking of all this, uh, space junk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I forgot how we even. Um, it would be Phil Hartman's uh, anal retentive carpenter. Oh, that, yeah. Wow, that's a great memory. Um, oh, so yeah. yeah, we said twenty-three thousand objects. Big object. Big objects are more concerning because obviously they collide and create cascades of smaller collisions. Um, that happened in two thousand nine when a working Iridium communication satellite collided with a dead Russian military satellite, generating thousands of new pieces of trackable debris and many more, even smaller ones. Uh, two years later, the ISS had to move to avoid debris from the crash. In 2012, some passed within 120 meters. That's really close in space terms. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so clear space is starting with something easy. In 2013, one of ESA's Vega rockets launched a payload of two satellites. The 112-pound kilogram, 112-kilogram payload adapter that attached ESA's Proba V, or maybe five, Earth-observing satellite to the launcher has remained in orbit ever since, between 664 and 800 kilometers up. It's now in clear space's crosshairs. It's a simple structure like a small satellite, said Muriel uh, Richard Noka, chief engineer of clear space. The challenge is designing an imaging system that can quickly and autonomously characterize the object before the claw grapples it, said Luisa Innocente, head of ESA's clean space office. You don't know how it's moving, and the only way to know is to go up and look. Um, they've argued uh, over the capture technique, whether they should... Uh, gra- so grabbing a claw requires a close approach, whereas snaring in a net can be done from a safe distance, but it has to work the first time. Uh, Richard Noka says, clear space opted for the claw because you can have multiple attempts. Usually unsuccessful, as we all learned as kids at arcades. Yeah. Um, they really are going for the full grabby hand thing. Yeah, it just looks like a big grabby hand. Um, so he said you can rehearse the whole procedure, uh, or maybe she, this is Muriel, that's right. uh, she said you can rehearse the whole procedure. It gives us the flexibility we need for this first mission. Other missions are testing out similar ideas with debris they create themselves. Wait, why? Just There's debris up there while you're there. Uh, an EU-funded mission called Remove Debris, designed by the University of Surrey, flew in 2018 and tested a harpoon and a net on small targets it deployed. Its test of a drag sail to speed its descent into the atmosphere failed to deploy, so it's making slower progress to re-entry. I, I do... I don't know. This this idea that they're putting more debris up there it's to check ridiculous. to make sure that they can get rid of it. <laughs> just, yeah. All right, we've now lost the test debris. And then they're just having to send up more and more larger, larger rockets to catch the things that they lost. Swallow the spider to catch the fly yep. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering why, because I'm looking at it as well, why remove debris, why the word debris is in capital letters. I bet they've made a fake acronym, like they've uh, remove and then debris stands for... Yeah, yeah. one thing we've discovered over the years of doing this show (laughs) is that the space industry in particular is really, like, really put some work into convoluted acronyms. Yeah, I'm trying to find it though. I really want to know what it is. Before, don't let us know when you find it because I want to try to think of it. So, uh, debris. Uh, <laughs> don't tell me. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. <laughs> D- directive employing basic recovery slash imaging services. <laughs> it, let's 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 see how close you are. 
I, I haven't found it yet. I can't Here we go. even... There's, there's a Wikipedia page for it. Let's see if it has the... No, it's... Right now I can't see it. It, it might just be capitalised the way Apple does with its products, where they put... They put little capitals in the middle or at the end oh, of words. Right. Just... It is strange. That it seems like it was they were making an attempt at... Uh... It does. By the way, have you guys seen um, Midnight Sky, the new uh, George Clooney space movie on Netflix? I didn't know there was one. Yeah, it's not... It's not that great. Uh, it's not that great. It's got an interesting twist, which I don't know if just saying there's a twist is a spoiler, but um, I was just thinking about how like there's so few movies that even make an attempt at getting orbital mechanics down, like getting things to look like. There was just a scene where someone is, uh, I guess you'd say in orbit, except they're stationary above this planet. <laughs> and then like someone just like, well, that's called, uh, what, isn't that called, what's it called, a geostationary orbit? Well, if you're in a geostationary orbit of a planet the size of Earth, you are about, um, like, five or ten Earths away. Like, it's, it's, you can only, at, at, at any given elevation, you, there is only one speed at which you can be orbiting. Right, so okay. So, you, if you want to get to the place where you're, you're above, you're geostationary, geosynchronous, you have to be crazy far away. It's impossible to be in like a 200-mile geosynchronous orbit. That's just called, it, you just yeah, it's fall. it's much further than the, um, than the ISS is. But yeah, just further. in one of these scenes, yeah, they're, they're hovering stationary above the planet and not falling for some reason. And then, you know, someone who's like, well, I'm going to go down to the planet, it just goes straight down to the planet. Well, then you're just going to be fall Like, people who think that, that 100 miles up, like the ISS, that they have no gravity. Like, no, their, their gravity is about the same as ours. They're just in free fall. If they oh, stopped yeah, yeah. orbiting, they would fall like, yeah. like any of us would. Was, so there fast. There was that thing that was the Sandra Bullock film Gravity, where yeah. again they just had we we have bitched about this before on the show, but there's there's when the film came out, which was half a decade ago plus, but it's um they they spent so much money getting the graphics so impressive, and then just didn't bother to make the bit where for some reason he's slipping away and. And she's holding onto his fingertips like it's the sort of action movie hanging off a building, just trying right. to hold on. But they're they're in orbit, and there's they're no not force. rotating. Or, uh, they're yeah. not rotating around an axis or anything. So there's no centrifugal force. So it would just take the tiniest force in any direction, and he'd float back to her. Yeah, it's um, so silly. What? Okay, I'm talking about gravity, then that film. Where do you stand on the whether or not it should be considered science fiction? or merely drama debate. Uh, wait, how so? Well, because people say it's science fiction, but just because it's set in space. But it's set in space with technology that we basically have. Oh, oh. So it's not really science fiction. It's not, it's not really, you know, it's not like set in a future where we're, we're talking about, you know, they're real spaceships. We genuinely have space stations and rockets, and it's real. Yeah. I haven't thought right. about that, but that's a good point. Is it just that they're saying we employ scientific concepts to get things in orbit? Because by that logic, like an action movie could be science fiction because like cars, well, re- cars exactly. require technology to run as well. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, any movie that has Siri in it now is like, oh, you've got a robot in your, in your apartment. <laughs> right, right. Well, this is my that's argument, good. yeah, because I, I, I did. I got into arguments with people about it because I say it's not a science fiction film. And, and people think of it as science fiction. And, and, and then somebody says, yeah, but some of the stuff in it isn't real. I go, yeah, but a Mission Impossible film, like, it's full of stuff that's not real. A James Bond film full of stuff that's not real. We don't call it science fiction. 
Yeah. I, I'm on your team for this now. I hadn't thought of it before, but I think you're right. Yeah. That's a fair point. Yeah, mission impl- we don't currently have the technology to accurately put someone's a mask of someone's face over your face so you completely look like that person. No. Mission Impossible is still just an action movie. Yeah. Although, and, if, if, and if anybody would know that, it's people in the movie industry. Because if, they, right. if we could do that, yeah. you know, most of them would be out of a job. <laughs> By the way, not to derail things even further, but did we talk about those old man masks that were everywhere on Instagram ads around Halloween? No. And how mad I would get because I was, it was obviously like some fly-by-night Chinese company that was not going to send you this mask. And these videos were clearly of high-quality movie things that cost thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. And they're advertising them for 30 bucks. Every time I would see one, I would uh, flag it as, as a scam in the hopes of like keeping someone else from. And then I was listening to a podcast where someone talked about ordering one. And of course, they got sent this like piece of shit mask. Like, yes, because it's impossible for you to get one of those Mission Impossible. It's, it is an impossible mission for you to get one of those movie quality masks for $30. It's just never going to happen. Didn't, I didn't try and buy one of those. But towards the beginning of lockdown, when no one could get toilet paper, I did find one Chinese website that promised to still have everything in stock. And so I ordered what was meant to be a 24-pack of Charmin um, Ultra Soft. And approximately four and a half months later, I received a package that contained one toilet roll. Oh my god. Uh, a single... Of, of some definitely Chinese brand that has Chinese writing on the inside. Did you did you go to the actual website before you ordered to see like how long the URL had existed? Because that's always a pretty well, good. No, uh, but I also I ordered it through PayPal and using my credit card, so I knew that if it was a scam, which it turned protected. out to be, I could get my I got my money back. Like I was able to. All it meant was that I some, something like thirty dollars was removed from my account brief for a few months and then put back in. So I lost the interest in that, I guess. Like, so, so the only loser really was PayPal because I'm sure that they didn't get that money back from the company. No, I so. think they did. I, I, mean, I don't know. I, I, maybe well, not. S- speaking of losing interest, I've been looking <laughs> at the uh, <laughs> removed debris. Yeah. <laughs> and I cannot see any evidence of an acronym. So I'm ju- I think the reason why it's remove in lowercase and then debris in uppercase is simply to emphasize that it's two different words. And you don't think it's removed Ebris. I think that's the, that's the only explanation I can think of. Either that or they have another, you know, project called Add Debris. Yeah. And maybe another yeah. called Find Debris. And then they have Remove Debris. Or, but, or Remove Debris, which is an anti-circumcision campaign. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm skimming the rest of this article just to see if we're missing anything else. Um Pivotal to the mission. I, I don't. I don't yeah. think we are. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> we got it. It's a claw. I, I, th- I think we got all of this in, and we should wrap up the main episode. But Ed, Ed yeah. are you able to stick around for a few minutes just to do one extra bonus story for the Patreon patrons? Sure, no problem. Thanks. Um, but yeah, I, I think we. I think we've got this story pretty covered. Yes. Yeah. I still yeah. do not understand why, the, how this is not the most inefficient way of doing things. But <laughs> yeah. And it, it it is. I think the idea of, of manufacturing junk that you can then take down again is, it's like there's like there's a company in it's either Denmark or Sweden that makes dust. What? Yeah, they make dust for people to, to test the efficacy of vacuum cleaners and things like that. 
because oh, you, it's, you, it's, they it's buy like, dust from a from a company that makes it for that specific reason. It's like how uh, toilet companies use this um, miso paste substance to, rec- to uh, replicate uh, something else you might flush. You're right. I, I love how confident. I love how. Oh, sorry. How shy you may other than that something else you might flush. There may be there may be ladies listening. So I don't wish to... We don't want anyone who's driving to swoon at the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about golf balls. Don't you guys flush golf balls? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think they, they should... Would, would it not be better just to implement a global you-put-it-there-you-take-it-home policy? Hmm. Like Taiwan For toilets style, or space? Everyone gets their yeah. bags. If you take something into space, you, ha- you have to bring it back, otherwise you get in trouble. That Plus, makes sense to me. It, it, it isn't that hard. Is it really that hard? Wouldn't most of these things, if they aren't given thermal protection... Never survive reentry. So all you have to do is nudge them into lower orbit so they burn up. Or am I crazy? Yeah, I mean, I would have thought that. That that seems to make sense to me. But I think I'm guessing the worry is if you simply nudge it, try to nudge it into low, lower orbit, that it might hit something else on the way and cause another one of these collisions that then causes, you know, I guess, space but dust space, to form. But space is big, you know. I mean, that's <laughs> like there's so many things in early space missions, or even until like SpaceX, where they didn't know, when when they deorbit things that aren't going to burn up. They don't know where they're going to land, and they're just like, "Well, most of Earth doesn't have people. It's totally possible <laughs> it oh, could no, land I think, on a I person." I think the issue is not what it's going to land on in, on Earth. It's whether it stays well, up in orbit and or hits something else that then leaves more things up in orbit. Well, and, right, but I'm saying like it's it's. I, I can't see how it's more dangerous to slowly lower it so it burns up and risk that on that descent into low orbit it hits something than it is to just leave it at an unburned state circling the planet forever like I don't know but I'm, I'm sure it's hard you know it's a cost to everything including a fuel cost to nudge it lower and to control how much low I, whatever I'm not a rocket scientist yeah. here guys literally <laughs> and, and there was me thinking you were yeah <laughs> Matt got me on this podcast uh, Promise me rocket science. <laughs> I was promised. I, I, I'm a surprise as you, Ed. And to be honest, <laughs> we, I, all these years I've been doing this show under what I now know to be a lie. I mean, I told you I'm taking a correspondence course in rocket science. I just haven't, I, my certification isn't going to come until, well, first of all, the mail is a whole thing, so they haven't, right. the certificate's going to take longer to get here. <laughs> Ed, we, we should wrap up the main episode, but where can yes. our listeners find out more about you and everything you're doing? Oh, gosh. Uh, I have a website, a quaint old thing, edburn.com. I'm on Twitter. It's my main thing, mredburn.com, mredburn.com, that is. Or not .com. But... Sorry, did I say .com? Sorry, I mean <laughs> at, at mredburn, at mredburn. Yeah. We, we I've been like... on Twitter for a long time. I can't believe I made that <laughs> rookie error. I, I think you were the first person to take me to task for saying www before naming a website. Yeah, that's that that had started to annoy me way before people, you know, copped onto that. That that annoyed me far too much, far too early. I have to admit. <laughs> I think it's because in New Zealand they 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 say dub dub dub. Oh, and I thought that's is New Zealand are way ahead on so many things, and shortening www dot to dub dub dub. Was uh, 
just another sign of what a visionary country they are. It is pretty amazing that we shortened the three-syllable phrase World Wide Web into the nine-syllable WWW. Yeah. Like that's how abbreviations work, right? You triple the length of saying something. Yeah. I know. And then people look at you like you're crazy if you go, wah, 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 Ed Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> so at Mr. Ed Byrne for Ed and edburn.com, you can find us at Probably Science individually at Matt Kirshen at Andy T. Wood. Uh, probablyscience.com is the website where we link all the episodes and any of the stories that we cover in the show notes that's where you can also find the Patreon and PayPal donation links thank you everyone who helps keep this show going and any questions, comments, clarifications and stories you'd like us to cover you can email them in to probablyscience at gmail.com so and Ed thank you so much for joining us not at all who does your music I think the music is just perfect I know it's supposed to be kind of cheesy but I'm that, curious that who is, did that for you that was made by Jesse who was the the third host of the show for a while before he he he's fine before now before he got I too big preface, for his boots I, I, <laughs> I should preface this with he is currently fine but he got cancer moved oh. back to Nashville uh, where he now hosts the the podcast Jesse versus cancer but he's also been in remission for a good couple of years now uh, but oh, Jesse... well, really, he shouldn't still be doing that podcast then. That's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> to be fair, it, it is erratic in its release uh, schedule. But well, I thought you meant the cancer was. Yeah, it's erratic <laughs> cancer. But uh, but yeah, Jesse Jesse is a man of curious talents in that. Yeah, very I, I musically talented. For a number of years, and kept discovering more things that he could do. Like when I found out that he has a sideline in buying and repairing old typewriters. Of course, uh, he does. And so, I think he. Well, he, before he did comedy, he's he's been a musician since before he started doing comedy. Um, yeah. So yeah, hence the. But he was he awesome. was Tom Hanks's typewriter supplier at one point. <laughs> or also that's, the time which that, is the I mean that's the U.S. equivalent of a royal seal, isn't, isn't it? it? That's yeah. the Equivalent of royal appointment. Yeah. And and also then the point where we discovered that this brings it full circle. Something we was talking about earlier that he he he's has dual citizenship, ca- Canadian and. Uh, American and there was a year that he was just living in the guest house uh, at the end of uh, Dan Aykroyd's garden (laughs) (laughs) because his dad was mates with Dan Aykroyd or his uncle was or something I forgot what the reason was that was the craziest Jesse Uh, I was like that I didn't know that for like three years of living with him and then that just came out. <laughs> just, you know how what, we're in comedy brother? and he's one of the biggest comedians. You, yeah. you only just mentioned that you lived in his house for a year. He missed getting his own tie-in movie by that much. I know, just... I know right? <laughs> but yeah, Jesse, Jesse made the theme tune. And... Right. Yeah. Well, well done, Jesse. So yeah, that, that's Jesse. And, and once again, thank you, Ed. Not at all. Yes. Thank you. Listeners, see you next time. Bye. Bye.